0: All right, Uh, that was awesome. Uh, If you've grown up in the church, you might have got some trauma and triggered because we all had to do that. I figured that's why we're making them do it, to understand uh, what we went through. A shout out to, if you guys don't know, Ryan, who is the oldest. I was that guy. Just like best at the motions, but so angry. That was me, so... I love it. It's just like, that was like my childhood. But if you're new to the church, yeah, you know, our education ministry, we love them. And that's just a little Sunday treat that we wanted to show for everyone here. But yeah, uh, good evening and a Merry Christmas Eve. Uh, very thankful to be able to worship uh, at this setting. If you don't know, we usually meet again at Buena Park High School. It's going to be closed tomorrow, so we're meeting tonight instead. Uh, and if you're new, my name is Sam. I'm part of the pastoral staff, and we do want to welcome you. Uh, again, thank you to uh, Lena, to Tim, and the staff for preparing that. Obviously, just the fact that they were somewhat coordinated, um, Thankful for that. Please do stick around. Uh, we do have food, and uh, it is good food. So, you know, we just, more than anything else, we want to celebrate together in fellowship uh, and eat some good food together. So, please stick around for that after. And next week, we'll be meeting here again at 10 a.m. So, thank you for your flexibility. Uh, and then after that, we'll go back to normal meeting at the Bonner Park High School. So, That being said, let's get straight into our message. So if you're joining for the first time, uh, we started a short three-week series called God With Us. And I mean, those songs were thank you to the praise team. I thought they were so fitting. And this Advent season is all about Emmanuel, God being with us. And today we're going to finish by looking at the most, obviously, prototypical text, which is the birth narrative of Jesus as recorded by Luke in his gospel account. So if you have your Bibles or your bulletins, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. The entire narrative will be verse 1 to 20, but we're not going to read it all. We're just going to read verse 1 to 7. But have it handy because I am going to reference uh, that entire text. So if we can all stand together at our church every time we open God's word, we believe that God is speaking moving and present through the reading of his word. So let's read starting from Luke chapter 2. We'll read from verse 1 through 7. This is the reading of God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray briefly for us. Father, we thank you for the Advent season that year after year reminds us, whether it's our first time hearing it or a hundredth time, of the glory of what it is to not only reflect on the birth of Christ, God become man in the flesh, but looking forward to the return of Christ all the more. Uh, God, we pray that this message would never grow old and that it would move us once again as this year closes out, no matter what season we're in, no matter what we've been through or are experiencing now, that there is hope in Christ. So we thank you for that, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Again, so whether we're Christian or not, um, all of us, again, are probably familiar with the story of Jesus' birth. Uh, This nativity scene is very in and outside the church. You can see it anywhere. You can purchase some of them at Costco, Hobby Lobby, wherever you go. And the nativity scene is popularized during this Christmas season. So even the songs we sing is all about the birth of Jesus, right? Joy to the world. Uh, Christ the Savior is born, Silent Night, O Holy Night, some of the ones we just sang. And so if you've grown up in the church in particular, which I think a lot of us have, the greatest challenge is not about knowing the gospel message, okay? I always tell people, especially who've been Christian for a long time, your issue is not that you don't know the gospel. The temptation is to numb, grow yourself numb to the gospel, uh, to tune it out. And I like that phrase, tune it out, a lot because uh, the definition of when you tune something out, it doesn't mean that you are not hearing or listening to it, okay? So the, when I tune a message out or tune somebody out, is not that I'm not intaking what they're saying, it means that I've become unresponsive to it. That's what it means to tune something out. So to tune out the gospel doesn't mean you don't know it, doesn't mean you don't hear it, it means now you are now unresponsive to the gospel, whether actively or unintentionally. Uh, Pastor Paul Tripp, he has a good Christmas Devo on this. A little bit of a longer quote, but I think captures it well. This is what he says regarding the idea. He says, I've thought a lot about the danger of familiarity in our lives as the children of God. It is good to be familiar with the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But familiarity often does bad things to us. Often when we become familiar with things, we begin to take them for granted. When we are familiar with things, we tend to quit examining them. And familiarity tends to rob us of our wonder and here's what's important about this. What has captured the wonder of our hearts will control the way we live. And I think that's just an appropriate text for a lot of us maybe who come into this season thinking, I've heard this before, or what's, what's going to be new? The point is not that we have something new. The point is something has become so familiar that it no longer impacts our life. And I've been reflecting on this a lot. Um, I've been pastoring for a good amount of time, believe it or not. And, you know, if my job as a preacher was always to present new and novel, exciting information to you, I would be out of a job in a couple years. Right? Makes sense. So if you really think about it, the worst season then for a pastor, if that's my job, is Advent, because every single year it's the same story. Right? So there's only so much you can do before it starts going to be a repeat or a repetition of over and over again, and yet I would say that's the point, because we are forgetful people. We get too familiar with something that should be radically changing our hearts and our lives. So the aim today, hopefully take a fresh but familiar look at the birth of Jesus. Not to teach something new per se, but to, for many of us, to help us to, once again, respond to it. And maybe for the first time, be moved by the gospel of Christ being born. And so, you know, one helpful tidbit as we consider Luke's account. So there's two accounts of the birth of Jesus. There's one in Matthew, there's one in Luke. Luke in particular, it's helpful to know that his emphasis throughout the whole gospel, and you see it from the very first one, is he wants to emphasize the historicity of the birth of Jesus. I hope I said that right. Basically, the fact that it really happened. It is true history. And I know for someone like me, um, I hear that, and over the year, it's hard not to feel like Christianity becomes more like fantasy and distant from reality and impractical and kind of like, you know, like once upon a time ish. And so that's why I think it's important to emphasize verse one of the narrative starts not with, a, you know, once upon a time, like I mentioned. He doesn't just burst into story without context, but he says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, which is Luke is setting the birth of Jesus in a real historical time and location. And sometimes we have to start there and be reminded that this is reality, this is not fantasy. This is not make-believe, but this actually happened. And it's important to know, especially if you're exploring the faith, that the Christian faith is not just a set of principles or good morals, but it's rooted in the historic documented reality that there was really a man named Jesus of Nazareth that was born in Bethlehem. It really, really happened. And so that being said, I'm going to break down the message in three ways. We'll look at the nature of Jesus' birth, the proclamation of Jesus' birth, and then third and last, the response to Jesus' birth. So first... The nature of Jesus' birth. Now, our church has been blessed recently with lots of growing families and pregnancies. And, you know, it's not abnormal at all to see married couples getting ready uh, to give birth by cleaning the home and nesting and purchasing a lot of new baby gear. And this season in particular, what a lot of married couples are doing uh, or that are expecting, they're just staying home, understandably. Because there's a demic going on. There's a lot of sickness. And so what they're trying to do, and no one will... No one will fault anyone who does this. They're creating a context of safety, of security, of predictability, and of comfort. Like, why would you not do that? You're about to give birth, and that's what you should be doing. And isn't that kind of, by extension, the perfect description of, like, the good life that, particularly in our context, middle class, kind of suburban people, like, chase after? Like, if you can have those four things describe how your life is, isn't that kind of the goal? Safe, secure, predictable, and comfortable? No surprises, no adversity, no obstacles. Well, Jesus' birth story could not be more polar opposite than those four things, if you consider the nature of how it plays out. Number one, the decree that Luke writes about in verse one, true history, basically it was Caesar Augustus, who was the ruler of the Roman Empire at the time. He basically wanted to create an organized way to collect taxes. So he says, everybody needs to register so we know who's in the empire, who's who, and you need to pay up to the empire. And so basically in verse three, what we see is what this entailed is everyone had to go to their hometown. And the problem with that is Joseph originally is from Bethlehem, but at the time that the decree is given, he and his betrothed Mary, which is a stronger way of being engaged back then, were living in Nazareth, which is about a hundred miles north of Bethlehem, his hometown. And there was no way around the decree. It was the letter of the law. It doesn't matter if you're pregnant. It doesn't matter how far you are. And so they have to make this journey to Bethlehem, and Mary is pregnant. Some of you guys uh, who've had pregnancies or are pregnant now, could you imagine that? Like, to give a reference, that would be like if my hometown were San Diego. And Angela was pregnant, and I said, hey, there's this law that just passed. We need to go register in person to San Diego, and she says, okay, well, I'm pregnant. I'll say, well, there's no way around it. And she says, how are we going to get there? And I say, we're going to walk. <laughs> there's no cars. There's no paved roads. We might have to go through a couple streams. We're going to get dirty. We're we'll going to have to go, you know, it's not going to be easy. And if that's not uncomfortable enough, you'll notice in the text in verse 4, it says Joseph went up from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, remember, I said Nazareth is north of Bethlehem. So shouldn't he say, I went down to Bethlehem? Why would he say we went up? The reason is because Bethlehem was 2,500 feet above sea level. It was an incline. So it'd be more inclined to me saying, not San Diego, but Big Bear. (laughs) Like, we're going to go to Big Bear to go register. And right when they get there, lo and behold, Mary's about to go into labor. So it's bad enough that they have to give birth away from home, away from probably what they had become accustomed to in context that's comfortable and familiar. But it gets worse because verse 7 tells us, No availability at the inn. Now, no need to get into detail what this inn might have been other than to say it's a more comfortable place than where they ended up, which was likely a stable, right? We've all seen this in the nativity scenes. People have dramatized this in a lot of ways. But the point is the stable was meant for animals, and there Jesus, baby Jesus, is laid in a manger, which if you don't know what a manger is, it is a feeding trough for animals like horses or cows. That's where they feed from. Some early traditions actually say the stable most likely was more like a cave. The point is on an evening like this, I think we can kind of relate to the sense that it was probably really cold. Right? There's, no, there's no doors there. It's your, the harsh elements are there. In the next verse, you'll see that the shepherds go visit Jesus at night. So it's likely nighttime. So just talk about like every single facet of this story is not ideal. There could not have been a more adverse and less than ideal way for Jesus to enter the world. You have an unexpected, inconvenient journey that happens to happen right at the time of pregnancy, an overcrowded city that has no vacancy, a smelly and cold birthplace, and then a feeding trough as your first crib for the baby. Now, what's going on here? The most mind-blowing fact about all of this, if you read the Old Testament prophecy and the Matthew's account, is this happened exactly how it was supposed to happen, right? Right? us comfortable, safe, secure, valuing people, we see that and we say, that's not how it should be. God would say, this is exactly how I penned it to happen. This had to happen in order for the fulfillment of the prophecy. He was literally, God was literally behind Caesar Augustus's decree. He was behind the no vacancy. Like, sometimes we forget, like, you don't think God could have opened up a room at an inn? No, God closed it. So all of this is ordained for Jesus to be laying in a manger. Why? Now, there's a lot that can be said, but here's one primary consideration based off the historic, less-than-ideal nature of Jesus' birth as we've seen. Let's bring it to us now. Number one, do you feel like your life is ideal? Like, think about that. Like, if somebody asked you, would you say, like, yeah, I have the ideal life. Everything is really ideal in my life. Maybe your Instagram shows that. Right, Your fabricated, edited version to say, oh, everything's so great. I travel all the time. I just eat really good food. Uh, and, then, you know, it's funny. People don't always... I, I find it interesting that Instagram, uh, whenever something bad happens, you just delete it, right? So, like, a, a relationship goes sour. They just, it just never happened, according to your Instagram. You literally delete it to create an idealized version of life. But is that really how your life is? Do you feel that way tonight, that this year my life was ideal? Do you feel like things always work out the way you hope? Or that you expect it to. There's a popular meme, you've probably heard of it or seen of it, called expectations versus reality. One of the most popular ones out there. And the reason it's so popular is because everybody resonates with the fact that life often disappoints. The reason it's so popular is because we all know life throws curveballs. Things rarely work out the way we hope situations will regularly spin out of our control. And even worse, sometimes things will happen the way we hope, and you'll still realize it's still empty, and it won't fulfill. And so the humble, uncomfortable, inconvenient nature of Jesus' birth into the world shows us that from day one, Jesus cosmically intends to crash land, not into your ideal, but into your real, into your reality, Jesus is Emmanuel, not on your Instagram life, but in your real life. Not primarily when things are just going well and we're doing fine, but the nature of the birth of Jesus shows us the Savior of the world is well acquainted with the reality of brokenness that we all experience, and many of us have experienced even this past year. And We try to hide it, try to suppress it. And that's where you have to understand the visceral nature of his birth. Uh, Kent Hughes, pastor, a little bit of a longer, but he sums up this point well. He says, quote, If we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept county fair stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched and scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and a crude straw made a contemptible bouquet. The Son of God was born into the world, not as a prince, but as a pauper. We must never forget that this is where Christianity began and where it always begins. With a sense of need, a graced sense of one's insufficiency, Christ himself setting the example comes to the needy. So the less than ideal nature of Jesus' birth was ordained and purposed by the Heavenly Father to bring Jesus straight into the mess and adversities of our lived reality. Second point, the proclamation. Now if the birth of Jesus was filled with adversity, the announcement and proclamation of it was filled with perplexity. Okay? I worked hard on that one, okay? It's like adversity, perplexity, okay. So a few months ago in September, if you turned on your TV to any channel, any news broadcast, you scrolled to Instagram, you would have heard the announcement that Queen Elizabeth II passed away. And that was a really, really big deal. I don't think it was confusing to any of us why this was announced, because she's, she's a queen, right? She's royalty. Like, the whole globe knew that the Queen Elizabeth had passed away. Now, despite his humble beginning that I just described, Jesus, quite literally, is also royalty, right? He is the son of God, the legitimate lineage of King David, so he's in line, descendant wise to be the king of the Jews. He's known as the prince of peace, as we sing. And so his birth had every right... And pedigree to be announced and proclaimed to the highest honor. But verse 8 tells us the first people God chooses to proclaim the message of Jesus' birth are literally the lowest class of people back then, which were shepherds. Now, I've shaved this sermon as much as I can because I really want us to be able to enjoy our food. There's so much I could say about this, but for time's sake, let's get to what the angel actually says to the shepherds in verse 10. Angels appeared to the shepherds, and the angel said, Fear not for behold i bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people now let's break down this angelic proclamation for us today first fear not in the immediate sense the angels probably literally saying don't be afraid because they are in the presence of angelic beings which brings a sense of fear and dread but in a deeper sense this announcement begins Probably with the most fundamental longing that each of us have, which is, isn't this the longing we all have? To have a believable, legitimate assertion that you don't have to fear, that you don't have to be afraid. It's no coincidence that the most repeated command in all of Scripture is actually just that do not worry, do not be anxious. And I would ask you tonight, as this year winds down, 2022, uh, Advent season, you know, what worries and fears do you carry in your hearts and your minds today? And I'm sure if you just take a moment to pause, there's so many. Surface-level ones, external ones, internal ones, relational ones. uh, All of these things that are just hovering around you like a dark cloud of things that you're afraid of and fears and worries and uncertainties. Too many to list, I'm sure, fear about careers and our reputations and our health and our relationships and our future and our children and the list is endless so how can anyone possibly say fear not don't be afraid who has the legitimate authority to actually say that with some oomph well let's see how the angel is able to say that continue with the proclamation he says fear not for i bring you good news oftentimes myself included we forget The Christian faith is based off news. The angel is not offering an enhancement to the lives of these shepherds or suggesting something to ease their fear or telling them, hey, you know what you got to do? You just got to fix this up. The angel is announcing something, is proclaiming something. I'm bringing you news. Something is happening. Something has happened outside of you that has nothing to do with you. This is the key to understanding the Christian faith. And what is this announcement? It's whatever it is, it will bring great joy. For who? For all people. So let me break down the isolated message of the angel. It says, you don't have to fear because I have good news. And when you hear this news and you embrace it, you're going to experience great joy in hearing it. And it is available to all. What a glorious proclamation from angelic being, right? Like, who doesn't want that? Don't you want that? Like, what could it possibly be? And then your mind starts to think, oh, what is it that's going to take away my fears, make me bring, bring joy into my life, and is available to everyone? And, you know, you might be thinking, lottery ticket, right? Uh, like, you know, retirement, more money, health, security, what is it? And whatever your, your brain, brain starts to go to shows you what your functional idol is, right? And here's what it is, verse 11, the most subversive promise to the good news. Here's what it is, for unto you, is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The basis of the good news of the proclamation is rooted in a person. Somebody has been born today in Bethlehem and not just born, but we need to realize, born unto you. Christ is born for you. For you that are struggling this year. For you that have all your anxieties and fear. Christ is born For you who are struggling with sin, who feel distant from God, Christ is born. And this person is not just any person, but there are three significant titles that this person all has, which is number one, Savior, which means this is the person that is going to save us and rescue us from the greatest problem all of us have in this room, our sin and separation from God. Christ, which is the promised Messiah, everybody has been waiting for this person to come, this deliverer, which is Christ, and third, Lord, which means this person has authority. Rightful authority. Savior, Christ, and Lord. And here's probably the most shocking thing about this Saul, The shepherds are probably thinking, all right, Christ, Savior, Lord, this guy must be dope. He must be this powerful person. How do we know who it is? What is the sign? And then the angels say, you know what the sign is? This messiah and king... There are two ways you're going to identify him. Swaddling cloths, and he's laying in a manger. Not royal robes, or majesty, or splendor and glory, but swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. Just let that marinate in your heads that the king and wise creator of all this universe said, the two ways I'm going to distinguish the Messiah are those two things. I like how one pastor puts a quote. He says, We have royalty clothed in rags, majesty emerging in the midst of the mundane, eternity stepping out into time, and the most prominent event of all human history being noticed by no one but a handful of outcasts. So Christ the Savior is born. The angels proclaim it to the shepherds. Tell them of the sign. So what now? And this is where I want to get a little more practical to us in light of, obviously, Advent and the Christmas season. As we see from the rest of the text, we're going to see there's five general responses that are seen in this text from the characters that I would argue, even today, are appropriate responses when you hear news of this kind of magnitude. Okay, five appropriate responses. And i would argue, again, it's not only true back then, but even today. And so as I share about these responses, the challenge as I bring it home is to assess where are you at in response to the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ, historical figure, really was born, really was saved, came to save you and really resurrected for your sake. And so the first response is curiosity. Look at verse 15. When the angels went away from into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So the shepherds get this proclamation. Someone's been born. Now they could have just been like, cool. And gone on with their lives. What is it that stirred them to actually go inquire more? To explore more? To actually see if this is true? Curiosity. It's an appropriate response when you are confronted with a reality that is marvelous and glorious like the gospel. So for some of you, maybe your response after hearing about Jesus Christ and the gospel is you're curious. And I would say that is a good thing. Maybe you are seeking or exploring Christianity and encourage you. Continue to be curious. Take active steps to find out more and see for yourself if this good news of the gospel really is that good. If it's really, as Romans says, the power of salvation for all. But if you're a Christian sitting here today, maybe what you need to see is how much of a lack of curiosity you have developed over the years. That nothing about the seismic reality of Christ and the gospel and the good news that the heavenly hosts of heaven and angelic beings are constantly praising for all eternity, zero curiosity. You, you, you don't want to know more about it. You, care to ask, you don't care to ask any more questions about it. You have no desire to explore more. You've almost graduated out of curiosity. And I would say, maybe that's where you need to start. Response number one. Response number two is proclamation. Look at verse 17. And when the shepherds saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So the shepherds see the sign of baby Jesus lying in a manger, and the response to that is what? They made it known. In other words, their response was to go tell people about it. Now, there's two things I want to point out about that. I think it's really weird that Luke doesn't tell us anything about when the shepherds actually see and encounter Jesus. It's like a lapse in the story. Like, look at it in verse 16, right? After verse 16, it says the shepherds went and confirmed it. Shouldn't there be a couple verses where they're like, and then they saw baby Jesus, and then they like, praise God? It just goes straight to they went, and then they started proclaiming. And I think that's the point. I think the point is one fruit of a genuine gospel encounter with Jesus is the inclination to want to share. Now, I know this is really, really hard. I think the church historically has not done a good job in our generation about things like sharing the gospel and evangelism. I don't think it's been modeled well. I think we have a lot of work to do here. And therefore, I'm sure a lot of us can't remember the last time we even shared the gospel. But I would say more than the method, what I would say is the desire there. Is this a message that you think is glorious enough that, man, I want to figure out how to do it well, but I do want to do it? Because that's what's going on here. And the second thing I want to point out, which is interesting, I couldn't get to it earlier, but shepherds, one of the reasons why shepherds were seen as such low classes, is uh, they were literally known to not be trustworthy. So in the legal court of law, shepherds could not testify because they wouldn't take their testimony as valid. So why would God choose shepherds to be the first people to testify to the birth of Jesus when they're the literally the only class of people whose testimony is not valid? Isn't that kind of ironic? How does it relate to us? I think for a lot of us, our fear in sharing about Jesus is because we feel like we aren't qualified. I feel like we don't have all the answers. Well, number one, it shows if God can use unreliable shepherds to advance his gospel message... I wonder what he's saying is we're failing to realize the power of proclamation rests more on who Jesus is and what he has done rather than who we are and what we can do because it's ultimately the message and not the messenger. Something to consider. Number three, the third response is wonder. Verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds Now, what is wonder, some helpful translations, they marveled at or they were amazed by or they were astonished. They were filled with awe. And, you know, I can't remember the last time I heard someone tell me, like, man, I just marveled at that thing. Or I was filled with the sense of awe. And I think part of it is because we're such a jaded and disillusioned society, right? Um, We have very flat affect when it comes to things that move us these days. Uh, very few things instill a sense of awe in us anymore, but if you really do your best to objectively consider the content of what these shepherds are sharing, would you not say it's worthy of wonder and awe, right? Like imagine the shepherd is your neighbor and the shepherd comes to you, and don't put your Christian filter on, but this is just a real neighbor telling you back in the day of something that happened. They say, You know, we were in our night watch watching the flock, and then an angel appeared. And this is your friend Bob. He's not lying you believe him, he's really telling the truth, literally an angel of God appeared and glory was all around him. And he told us, do not be afraid. And he proclaimed to us that the promised Messiah is born in Bethlehem, which is a few steps down from where we were in a manger and that through this baby is going to come joy, salvation, and peace to all. Like, doesn't, at least wouldn't you be like, wow, right? Right? Like, maybe you might have your skepticism, but wouldn't you at least say, wow. And here's a challenge of wonder as, a, as an emotion. It is a responsive emotion. You can't just fill yourself with wonder. Like, if I told you, be odd, that doesn't work, right? Because you need to be odd at something or someone. So, for example, one way that, you know, in this society and culture, a lot of people experience it all is nature, you go visit Zion National Park, Yosemite, the Grand Canyon, and you go see those places for yourself and the glory of creation, you are in the presence of something so grand, and naturally what happens is you begin to be filled with awe as the wind is in your face, as you take in the vastness of the canyon and wonder and awe fill you. And the problem is this, you can't do that through pictures or secondhand accounts or videos or scrolling to your Instagram. You need to take the time to go visit firsthand and stand there for yourself. That's what happens when we take the time to draw near to God's presence. See, so many of us have lived our relationship with God from a distance That we feel nothing. We hear about it. We hear people talk about it. But what Advent is doing is kind of crushing into that rhythm of yours and saying, here's an opportunity for you yourself now to step into the manger. Take a look around. Marvel at the virgin birth. Marvel at Emmanuel. God with us in the form of human flesh. And as Paul Tripp says, the reason this is so important is because what you are wondering at what you are filled with awe at it's going to affect your life if you really believe what this is this truth cannot help but affect the way that you will live number four this one is um, the one that i personally love the most the fourth response is pondering verse 19 but mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her art now, obviously, Mary is a significant figure in this narrative, and we haven't really touched on her. But I have come to fall in love with this verse, and I'm still doing a lot of wrestling with it because of how profound it is. But notice how real and raw Mary's response is to the crazy things that are happening in her life. I mean, like just think about Mary, right? Everyone knows she would have been a teenager, okay? So at oldest, maybe 18, potentially 14, and she's so far in her life she's been visited by an angel and says, "Hey, you're going to give birth." supernaturally, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and this guy is going to be the savior of the world. And not only that, you're going to give birth in a stable next to horses and cows, and then as she's there, these shepherds come and say, hey, angels told us about you. Like, just put yourself in Mary's shoes. What I love is it doesn't say, and therefore Mary glorified God and just accepted all of this as her lot in life. It says she treasured these things and pondered these things. Now, what does the word "treasured" mean? It, treasured implies the idea of safekeeping or preserving something for later use. So, for example, many of us treasure our photos. Why? Because we want to keep them safe and we want to preserve them for later use, right? Makes sense. And the word pondered is an interesting word, right? We don't really use it that often. But I think a similar word for pondered could be the word to, to reflect or to process. That's a more maybe contemporary word. And to put it together, what this means is the way that Mary is intaking the work of God in her life, she's not just saying, okay, this is God, or like, sure, why not praise God? But she is safekeeping these things, and she is pondering and processing these things and reflecting on what is going on in light of who God is and what she knows of God to be true. And the reason this is relatable is because this is what it shows. It shows that even Mary, the mother of Jesus, did not have it all figured out. She didn't. There were moments where she clearly must have struggled with God, moments where she was confused, when things just didn't make sense. But what we see is her response to those things are not bitterness, but rather she takes these moments to safekeep keep these things and to ponder upon them in her heart. What we see in Mary is not shallow belief, but a serious, if I can call it, a pondering faith. And I bring that up because I think for many of us, this might be where you are at in your response to the gospel. Like there's a mixed bag when it comes to God. You can't really make sense of it. And what I'm doing is I'm liberating you to a healthy response and a category we see here is you don't have to have it all figured out, but treasure, safe keep, And really process those things in light of who God is. I think God is honored in that. And the fifth, and very simply, praise. And the shepherds returned glorifying, praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And that one is very straightforward. Obviously, the gospel is praiseworthy. And just a quick word on this, if you don't mind. This is more a personal thing. One of my prayers for our church next year is that we can be a church that praises more and sings more. Um, You know... I've always been someone that has grown up in more, I guess, for lack of better words, conservative context, where times of praise, we're not really like, hoorah, it's very like quiet and things like that. And not to say, again, this could be preferential, but personally, I just think scripture seems to point to the fact that one regular response of God's people when they're really understanding who he is and what his work is, is that they are a praising people. That they are singing and glorifying. And that's not to say you need to do it in a certain type of way. But I will say, I wonder if there is an indication of the health of our church in that one of the lacking responses seems to be that we don't really praise And that's something I would want a burden to be on all of our members in particular. That's just something that I want to throw in there. So five responses that are up there. Curiosity, proclamation, wonder, pondering, and praise. And so we close here. The question I want to ask is, where are you at in your response to the gospel today? Are any of these present in your heart? Now notice what you do not see anywhere in scripture as an appropriate response to the gospel is indifference or apathy. It is inconceivable that you could respond to such a message with indifference because as we see, starting from the Old Testament to the fulfillment of Jesus to his return, the magnitude of the good news of the gospel is a message that demands a response. And no response is a response according to Scripture. And so as we are on the eve of Christmas, which is what? A day remembering the historical, glorious entrance of God into human flesh as a baby to walk in our shoes, your shoes, my shoes, take our sins, die on the cross, and to resurrect in power to return again, which he is going to. The prayer is this, fight to not tune that message out. Fight to not be unresponsive to a message like that. And so I'm going to invite the praise team up right now. And as I invite them up, uh, and we're going to close in a song, what I would say is just a summary of the message. The shepherds responded with praise, worship, and proclamation. The people who heard the report responded with amazement and wonder. Mary responded with quiet reflection and pondering. And the question for us today is, how will you respond to the good news of the birth of Jesus, Savior, Christ and Lord, So let's just take a moment on our own, just to reflect. Maybe for some of you, you just need to think about this past week, others this past year, others just the weight of the message. And if you need a place to start, just take one of those things that were up there. Lord, instill and foster within me a heart of curiosity. Lord, help me to want to praise you more. Lord, give me an indication of how I can proclaim more. But most of all, just pray against the spirit of indifference. So just take a moment, and then I'll close for us, and then we'll close in song.